Hello, I'm Brian Hubbard. And I'm Lynn McTaggart. And we are What Doctors Don't Tell You. And welcome to yet another podcast, vlogcast, where we skit and comment about the news as we feel is relevant, interesting, that you may not read in the national or international media. So uh, let's kick off from with something I think is quite controversial now. I think it's picking up a head of steam, this story. And it's about fluoride. Fluoride being added to the public uh, drinking water supply uh, with a view to helping kids avoid tooth decay. I think it was first introduced in the States in about the 50s and now around about 60% of American homes have fluoride. A bit less in the UK, about 12%. But it ain't good for the kids. And um, two reports suggest certainly that we should reconsider adding it to our water. The first study says that the fluoride can damage kidneys and liver and disrupt thyroid function and even cause the tooth decay it's supposed to be preventing. And children especially at risk because they can't process the fluoride as as an adult can and they can just excrete just 45%. So that means uh, 55% is retained in the body. And of course, children who already have a poor kidney and liver function are at highest risk. So if your child does have that problem, you really do need to find out from your local water company if they are fluoridating the water. Um, they, The uh, researchers from Mount Sinai Hospital discovered all this when they took blood samples from nearly 2,000 children. And um, and another from about 1,700 kids who were in areas that weren't being fluoridated and found that these uh, this health problem was existing only in the children who were in the fluoridated area. And before I pass on to Lynn, another story came through this week, again about fluoride, and again very concerning. And this time it's about IQ and the fact that women who... Um, drink uh, fluoridated water whilst they're pregnant um, increase the chances of their baby boy having a lower IQ score and they're testing it out about four points below the average at the age of three or four. Girls it seem to be less affected but even so they are mm-hmm. affected because they're still seeing something like a three-point drop in their IQ. Um, and uh, some skeptics have said well you know, this is bad research because why are the boys and girls different? Well, they could be different because they develop differently. And I think that certainly is a, a real possibility. Um, and they did this test uh, in, um, in six Canadian cities where they tested fluoride levels of just over 500 pregnant women and then tested the IQ level of, of the children, as I say, about three, four years after birth and uh, made this direct link between the two so fluoride is it just too much and is it maybe just for the sake of tooth decay it seems to be causing much more serious health problems well and it's also questionable brian whether or not it improves tooth health as it is Mm. i mean the problem is there is a real balance between something that strengthens the teeth and something that causes problems And one of the big things with fluoride is causing fluorosis. Mm -hmm. And there are many, many 
children. And that is have, staining of the teeth, isn't it? Mottled teeth, yeah. yes, that are mm. permanently mottled from mm. too much fluoride. Mm. So not only is it bothering your insides, but it's also bothering your teeth. Um, the other thing to say about it is there are loads of other ways of strengthening your teeth. I mean, teeth get affected by things like magnesium, vitamin D, vitamin K, all of those things which strengthen bones also strengthen teeth. So holistic dentists, when they want to create more bone or they want to create healthier teeth, really recommend that people, particularly children, get more of these kinds of vitamins in their lives. So there's loads of other ways of uh, countering tooth decay than fluoride. And even going so far as, I mean, these days, you know, a lot of dentists are doing little fissure sealants for when the children are small and more liable to have tooth decay. Um, but of course, the best thing of all, Brian, is a good healthy diet, limiting sugar. Don't succumb to sugary drinks. They're one of the worst things. Don't use, don't have your kids do chewing gum and make sure that they've got a good whole food diet mm. and then they're less likely to have tooth decay and, and it's interesting too lynn that i mean fluoride was introduced as i say in, in the early 1950s in in the states really before a fluoride toothpaste and the like uh, were, were popular and on the scene and um it's actually debatable if it actually is even providing that protection because um when you look at ireland i, I mentioned earlier about 12 percent of homes in in UK in, in England have uh, fluoride fluoridated water, but in Ireland, is it, it's it, the vast majority of homes do, and it also happens to be the country which has the highest level of tooth caries or tooth decay in children. Yeah. So it, it's clearly not not it's not, not working. Yeah. And uh, you know, it's it is a it's, it is a toxin. It, it can be it, it can be dangerous at high levels. I mean, they say well, it's a natural naturally occurring thing but of course at high levels it's beyond what the normal body is exposed to and especially if you're a small child which as we say can't process this properly i mean it does seem to present genuine problems and um yeah it's like one of these things we talked about amalgam the other week and it's, it's it seems to be in that same category where no one's ever going to admit this yeah but uh because the, the the liabilities would be so vast um so i guess the day will never come but certainly i think that um local authorities are the ones who determine whether the mm. water should be fluoridated but i think a lot are quietly tiptoeing away from this one yes and there are filters water filters that can take out fluoridation mm, yeah. just like they take out every other kind of mm. contaminant mm. so you can get those even reverse osmosis systems i believe will also take out fluoride they take out pretty much everything mm. um and of course remember one other thing which is anything processed any processed food is turns into sugar mm. in a child's mouth mm. so if you want to prevent tooth decay, do one really important thing, cook from scratch. The opioid scandal has left whole communities in America destroyed when many adults are unable to work and many more 
never quite made it. They've died as a result of their addiction. It's probably the single most addictive drug that is legally prescribed. And um, doctors have played their part in that. And we've done reports in the past how some doctors received money for opioid prescribing. But guess what? They're giving it to small kids as well. A new report has come out to uh, show that around 60% of kids who have their tonsils removed are being given the drug. And they're getting an average of 48 doses of opioids after a tonsillectomy. And um, why? Well, because um, normal painkillers, the doctors reckon, uh, re uh, can cause post-surgery complications. Uh, but really, some researchers have looked at this, University of Michigan researchers, say, well, we're not entirely sure that that holds water and that also that the standard uh, painkillers are just as effective. And, of course, without the same serious side effects as opioids have. And, of course, one of the other problems is these kids are being given a vast bundle of opioids to take home, which are being left in the home. And, you know, teenage kids, the parents, whomsoever, are taking them instead. So adding to the addiction ep epidemic then. Uh, it's just, you know, unspeakable, mm. to be honest. Um that we have no crackdown on these kinds of drugs among all of the population. But the idea that these are given to children mm. when there's no good evidence, it's manipulated evidence um, mm. to say that these are better and protective of, um, of post-operation complications is, you know, there's a special place in hell mm. for the people mm. in drug companies who are doing this kind of thing. Yeah and have caused this kind of extraordinary epidemic in the States. But it's complicated because you say the drug company, but actually, and we mentioned this last time, the PDR, the Physician's Death Reference, this vast tome they used to produce. And almost every drug came with the same warning that it shouldn't mm. be taken by pregnant women and children. So despite that, doctors are, are mm. ignoring this advisory and are still prescribing the drugs to kids when really they shouldn't. I mean, the the um, research actually covers children from the age of one to 18. And please, don't tell me that kids of one and two and three are being given opioids. Let's hope that's not the case. But even so, they are small children, young adolescents, and who really shouldn't be taking this stuff. And mm -hmm. um, so it's the doctor's who are still prescribing when really they shouldn't be. Well, you know, that isn't surprising when we hear so much anecdotal evidence of people who are harmed, maybe temporarily or permanently, by a drug, and the doctor never looked it up. Mm. So when they did, and they found there's a case we know of of a woman who uh, was getting jaundice after being given beta blockers postpartum, uh, after having her baby, and she said, I think this is the drug, because the drug caused liver problems. It was right there in black and white in, you know, the equivalent of the PDR. Mm. And uh, he said, no, no, it can't be that. In fact, a whole team of them said, no, it can't be that. Nobody bothered to look it up. So bottom line is really, if you're given a drug or your child's given a drug, you do the looking up mm -hmm. because you can't rely on your doctor to know or to do his homework.
Keeping on the theme of children's health and children taking drugs, probably the most common, most prevalent drug given to kids is, of course, the ADHD drugs. And I suppose the most famed example is Ritalin. And um, at one stage, I mean, these were being handed out like sweets because every naughty child would suddenly diagnose with ADHD and were given these drugs. And um, ADHD, as you probably know, means attention deficit hyperactive disorder, or as they used to call it, naughty. But anyway, they're given drugs, and they've only just discovered that these drugs, and in particular Ritalin itself, alter the structure of the child's brain. And in particular, it changes the distribution of the brain's white matter, which affects the child's ability to learn, which of course is what Ritalin is supposed to be helping with. It's meant to be helping kids focus so that they can learn and uh, be model students. And this uh, change in the brain is seen within four months of starting the medication. And um, something, you know, yet again, another example of something that people have only just discovered, you know, years on, from prescribing this drug, they say, oh, actually, you know what? It changes the brain. Never saw that before. And the researchers from the University of Amsterdam were the ones to discover it by using MRI scans on the brains of uh, 50 boys and 48 men who had been diagnosed with ADHD. So half of that group were given Ritalin and the other half were given a placebo. So after four months, they have another MRI and lo and behold, those given the, the boys given the Ritalin, but not the adults, saw a significant change in the white matter in their brain. And of course, those who had been given the placebo, the dummy drug, saw no change at all in their brains. And Interestingly, it was the boys who were affected, not the men. So it seems to be a developmental thing as the brain is maturing and growing that it is particularly vulnerable to, to this, this damage. Absolutely. And, I mean, there's been so much evidence about Ritalin. Mm. And nevertheless, it doesn't seem to have taken hold in the mainstream. And as soon as children are a little bit naughty or a little bit lively they are then diagnosed with ADHD. Mm. And, you know, even though they have the capacity to sit quietly when they're doing certain things. Um, I'm very interested in the work that was done by John Gray, who, better known as Men Are From Mars, mm -hmm. Women Are From Venus fame, he did um, a book not long ago, called Staying Focused in a Hyper World. And he wrote about himself. He was somebody as a child who had ADHD. And he put it together when he developed the beginnings of Parkinson's disease, that um, this all had to do with dopamine. And he also started looking at things that affect dopamine in the body. And one of those things is sugar. The other thing that has almost an identical effect is gaming, computer mm. gaming. Ah. So all of these things cause kind of ADHD type effects. Mm. Um, 
And their solutions really have much more to do with nutrition Mm -hmm. and getting kids off of excessive gaming and other kinds of addictive behaviors Mm -hmm. than taking a drug Mm -hmm. that we now know that has Mm -hmm. been absolutely demonstrated to cause sleep problems in children, weight problems, height problems, and now brain problems. Mm Um, it's interesting. I remember yeah, a few years back now, we got hold of a secret memo where the uh, ADHD drug manufacturers were urging a major push on the prescribing of this drug. They didn't feel enough kids were getting the drug, and they were actively urging the doctors to start you know, prescribing more. And now this report comes out, and um, the you know the University of uh, Amsterdam researchers say, you know, the part is over. It really is time to mm. stop prescribing these drugs. Because the, the, we don't know the long-term effect. We know it affects learning and capacity to learn, but we don't know what happens in adulthood, it, yeah. which are the brain. And, and they say, you know, there have got to be better ways, if you've said, Lynn, of treating ADHD, and drugs ain't one of them. Absolutely. Okay, so patients who are going to have a sort of a, a, a small operation, uh, outpatient treatment, what you will, are often given a sedative, uh, usually known as a peripheral nerve block, before they actually have the op to calm them down. Trouble is, the drug can have quite nasty side effects and known as paradoxical uh, mm. side effects, and they people can become hostile and agitated which is the, <laughs> the very thing it's meant to be protecting against, and it also can cause breathing problems. So, uh, University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine researchers decided, well, what else can we do? Well, what else you can do, instead of giving out these nerve blockers, is actually playing music. And, say the researchers, it works just as well. They um, tested all this out by giving a group of 157 patients either the nerve blocker or they were able to listen on their headphones to a piece of ambient music. They're called, actually called Weightless by a group called Marconi Union. And uh, it's a piece apparently specially prepared by sound therapists to reduce stress and anxiety. And so they um, did this and they tested the stress levels of patients before and after they either listened to the music or had been given the nerve blocker and found the same level of stress. In other words, the lack of stress was the same in both groups. So, I mean, a genuine alternative to a drug and uh, one without any nasty side effects other than making you tap your toes. Well, I find that really interesting because, uh, first of all, really these anti-anxiety drugs, you know, mm. which are Valium by yeah. a variety of other names, mm. um, can cause and have been long known to cause a- anxiety, mm. <laughs> essentially, mm. um, and loads of other agitation and loads of other things that they're supposed to take care of, they're supposed to successfully treat. It's been known for a long time. And of course, they're also habit forming. Mm. So the idea that we've got something else um, to just calm patients down, and that's the only reason 
they're given these drugs, which is mm. to knock them out a little bit so that when they do get anesthesia mm. um, or whatever kind of painkiller they're going to have or, you know, anesthesia of, you know, whether it's uh, a general or local, um, they're calmer. Mm. But so much better if they are naturally calm. Sure. And that piece of music, again, in case you didn't catch it, is called Weightless. Weightless. And it's on um, YouTube and all this. I listen to it. It certainly sent me to sleep, I'll tell you. <laughs> okay. So you've been to the restaurant, you've had your wine, you had that last cup of coffee, your wife said, really, Bernard, do you think you should? But you did, you did, and now you're awake. You can't sleep at night. You think, I shouldn't have had that coffee. But researchers say, no, you're fingering the wrong suspect. It's not the coffee. It was the wine that's preventing you from sleeping properly, which you think, well, that's a bit counterintuitive because coffee is caffeine and isn't that what's keeping me awake? Well, not according to Florida Atlantic University researchers who looked at the lifestyle sleeping habits of 785 people. And uh, these looked especially at alcohol and caffeine consumption and smoking four hours before you get to bed. And um, people who smoked or drank wine uh, seemed to have an interrupted sleep, but those who drank the coffee didn't. And of the two culprits, smoking was actually by far the worst. It was worse than the wine. And smokers who smoke at least four hours before going to sleep lose up to 42 minutes of sleep a night. Second in the list then is wine. And third, coffee, which is um, seems quite extraordinary. And the researchers point out 70 million Americans regularly suffer a disturbed sleep. So maybe they need to look at their, um, well, their smoking and their wine drinking then. Well, it's interesting with wine. I mean, everybody thinks, well, that kind of, you know, alcohol, unless you're really consuming loads, should actually make you more relaxed and go to sleep. Mm. The problem is most wine is you know, laced with tons and tons of chemicals. And those chemicals are probably the thing that is keeping you awake. Yeah. Now, one of the things we discovered in our travels, we ran a retreat last year in Tuscany, and we found that Tuscan wine is made without these certain chemicals that are ubiquitous in other areas of the world that are winemaking. The only issue is they're put back into the wine in America. Mm. So if you get Tuscan wine anywhere else, you probably have it without the chemicals. If you go to America, you've got it put back in. Uh, so you've got to go get your stash from Tuscany. So that's why so many Americans don't sleep then. <laughs> that could be one reason. Bro. Ah, okay. So that, but they were smoking is the worst thing to do. But wine drinking is the second. As long as it's, unless it's Tuscan wine, then you're all right. Uh, or any other, I suppose organic, any organic or type wine probably is better for you. Because the research didn't really test for that. But there you are. Well, look, Lynn, I think uh, we've wrapped up another podcast. And uh, thank you for your extremely interesting, valuable contribution. Um, and I'm Brian Hubbard. Oh, by the way, I just remind everyone, the website is wddty.com. 
where you can go and subscribe to our marvellous monthly magazine, and we'll send it to you every month. So that's the end of the advert. I'm Brian Hubbard. Thanks for watching or listening. And I'm Lynn McTaggart. We'll see you next time. <laughs>